0: i I'm, I'm going to speak about something that's a bit abstract this morning, and uh, I have been wrestling with what do I do with this and we could make a connection, but uh, one of the things that's difficult sometimes with kids is to to give them abstracts that are hard to wrap their minds around and i'm uh, to be to be uh, open with you i've I've uh, had a harder week than normal in this passage and the topic that I want to address this week, and my mind's been going all over the place, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm even a little concerned how I'm going to explain what's in my head and heart to you, nevertheless, the, uh, the kids, with, when that's a, a lot harder to, but perhaps uh, you have, like me, you've been in those situations where people ask you difficult questions relating to your faith. And they ask you these questions not necessarily because they want to know. they ask you these questions because they want to catch you out. They want to uh, trap you into saying something that can then in some way be used against you. It can be used to minimize your faith. it can be used to 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 um Maybe to ridicule you. You really believe that? <laughs> Nobody believes that anymore. Or to, to just push you out of the public square, the, uh, the, the public discourse, that, that ideas like that are just not acceptable in, in our society today any longer. Um, for instance, maybe you might get asked, do you believe it's God's will that mass shootings, drug overdose, car accidents, do you believe it's God's will that bad things like that happen? What do you say? Well, of course not. Oh, well, it's too bad God wasn't able to stop it then. Is God not able to do something about that? But if it, is it God's? What do you do with a question like that? Or how does a Bible where God endorses a kind of warfare that wipes out women and children at times, how does a Bible like that become a standard for our morality today? In the Bible, there's all kinds of laws. How do you pick and choose? How do you know which ones to follow and which ones not? I mean, the, there's, there's in the same sections, there's laws that forbid eating bacon and pulled pork sandwiches and laws that forbid the blending of fabrics like cotton and polyester in your shirts and laws that forbid things like homosexuality and adultery. How do you pick and choose one and not the other? Why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Does the Bible really say that all people around the world who aren't Christians are going to hell? Does the Bible really say that? Do you really believe that? Do Christians still believe that, that God made everything that there is in all the, all the world and all the universe in, in just six days, just a few thousand years ago? Do Christians still believe that anymore? Does anybody still believe that? What do you do with questions like this that might be abstract, uh, normally are not really searching for an answer? I'm, not, I'm talking about that person that asks you this almost mocking faith. How could your faith be, be um, relevant if these are the kinds of things that you would believe? The passage that I wanted us to go to today uh, poses that question that we are in the midst of a very polarized society. How do we keep our balance and, and be able to speak, to contribute? How do we keep our balance, not get knocked off balance by questions like these in a polarized, partisan society where everything it seems, every issue it seems, you're either with me or you're against me. Well, there, were, there was a time in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 12, where I'm going to be going, where, where, where Jesus faced questions just like this. They were not honest questions. They were not seeking questions. They were not questions where people were inquiring, wanting to, wanting to help. Lord, help me to believe. Help me to understand. No, these were challenging questions that, that presupposed, how could you think like this? How dare you would, you would promote something like this? Or in questions intended to trap him, to give an answer that they expected he would have the courage to give, but once he gave it, they could use it against him. I want to read all three. We're going to start in, in Mark chapter, chapter 12 from verse 13. I think you're, you're on about page 848, is that right? Page 848, if you're using the church Bible in front of you. And we're going to go through three different questions, three different sets of people, people that didn't agree among themselves and yet they agreed to come together and try from one angle or another, let's trap Jesus in something that he'll say. We'll see how it goes. Maybe we can gain some insights into how can I respond helpfully today when we run into these same kinds of questions. Okay, so they were seeking, verse 12, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parables against them, so they left him and they went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, in his speech. We'll catch him in something he says. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, We know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us as Jews to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We've been wondering about this. Now, you should know the party that's asking this question is the Herodian party. This is the Loyal to Rome party. They're called Herodians because they supported King Herod, who was Rome's king in the land of Israel, and uh, hated the Herodians, and the Romans were hated by a conservative Jewish population that did not like their Roman idolatry, did not like the fact of, of, of foreign rulers, non-Jewish rulers, exercising authority over them even in their own capital, Jerusalem. So this was a very contentious point, and they hated to pay tax to Rome, which showed they were under Romans' authority, and they longed for the Messiah that would deliver them from that. Okay. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them, or should we not? We want a definitive answer, please, Jesus. But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, well, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. And they they marveled at that answer. The Sadducees came to him. Now the next group comes. We say that there is no resurrection. These were the leaders of the temple. These were the leaders of the highest spiritual worship in Israel, but they didn't believe in spiritual things. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in in any life after death. They believed in offerings and sacrifices. They believed in keeping the law of Moses. They believed only in the five books, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what they relied on. They said, we don't find any angels. We don't find any resurrection. We don't find this supernatural spiritual stuff in there. We find rules of conduct to obey, to, to control our behavior. We find sacrifices that are honoring to the God who created us. We don't find any afterlife. Okay, so they come. Mocking this whole idea of resurrection, then they asked Jesus a question, saying, "'Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's mother, brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother.'" There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. So the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the the woman died also. So this is the practice of a Leverite marriage, where in order to raise up an offspring in the name of the dead brother, this is how that happened. In the resurrection, they ask then, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her his wife. That poses an awkward question, doesn't it? he? Is she going to be the wife of all seven? Now the women out in the room are thinking that would not be heaven. So, what's it going to be, Jesus? What do you do with this? Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the, in the passage about the bush, the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Doesn't pull any punches there. Verse 28, and one of the scribes now came up to him, heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? This one doesn't sound as divisive, it doesn't sound as entrapping, although again, it was an issue of the day. Explain that as we get to it. But Jesus gives an answer. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, for you have truly said that he is one." And there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Three different entrapping questions. Three different questions he answers right. There's something we can learn from the way that Jesus answers these questions. And I should say right up front, you and I are not the apologists that Jesus is. You and I are not the debaters that Jesus is. And yet Jesus doesn't really necessarily debate the point here. There are some things that he does that we also can do. Really, I would suggest things that Jesus does that we must do if we're going to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. The first of all, the first one I would say is to don't merely accept the issue as it's prevented. Be willing to elevate the issue. Be willing to answer the question behind the question. That's what I think Jesus does especially well with the Herodians. He elevates the discussion to the higher. Issue. This is intolerance. What the Herodians are doing. This is intolerance masked as a question. It's not unlike when, a, when recently in a confirmation uh, hearing, one of the senators asked the person who was being um, confirmed for this position, asked him, "Sir, do you believe that anyone in the country who?" does not believe in Jesus, that means Muslims, Jews, or any other religion who aren't Christian, that they don't know God and are thus condemned. He was quoting from this man's earlier writings as a Christian when he went to Wheaton University. And so, so he's, he's, he's challenging him on this. Do you believe that all of these millions of Americans who are Muslims or Jewish or some other religion, not Christian, do you believe then that because they don't know Jesus, that they don't know God and that they are condemned? And he's hoping that he'll say, yes. Yes, sir, I do. The Bible says that that, uh, no man comes to the Father except by Jesus, so that's what I believe. He's hoping he'll just leave it at that. He'll accept the question as it's presented the answer instead, was something more like this. He said, "Sir." And he had to do this multiple times as he got pressed. And he kept the same question. he said, "Sir, as a Christian, I believe the Bible. And most importantly, then, uh, first of all, in that Bible, then I believe in the dignity of, of all humanity. I believe in the dignity of every person as someone who's created in the image of God and thus to be treated with honor and respect. You could add tolerance. And he went on to affirm that as a Christian, he did believe in Jesus as God's Savior for the world and for all of the world, that nobody was excluded from that. But he didn't really answer the question on the questioner's terms. He elevated it, and that's what Jesus does here. Here they are gathered in the temple, and these Herodians who care nothing about the Jewish Old Testament law, their lot has already been cast with Herod and Rome, and they want to know from him, what do you think is it lawful according to Moses? What are you going to say? If Jesus is the Messiah, how can Jesus endorse as the Messiah, how can he endorse paying taxes to Rome? If, if Jesus endorses paying taxes to Rome, how could he possibly be the Messiah who's going to deliver Israel from Rome? And not only that, but he's going to have all these Jewish people very unhappy with him. Do you see the trap that they've laid for him? If he says no, if he, if, he, if he says what they expect because he claims to be the Messiah, no, we do not need to pay taxes to Rome because we are God's people. Now they can go tell the Roman authorities, did you hear what Jesus said? He, Jesus is, if you want to get the government on your back, there's probably no quicker way to do it than to publicly say, we don't have to pay taxes anymore. That will get their attention, I promise you. Do you see the trap they've laid for him? Either nobody's going to follow him anymore because what kind of a Messiah is this, or we're going to have the Romans get rid of you right here and now. And Jesus says, okay, well, here they are in the temple court. So he says, well, show me, show me a Daenerys. Why do you put me to the test? Show me, bring me a Daenerys. Let me look at it. And sure enough, one of them fishes out this coin right out of his pocket. And this is important that they have this coin with them here in the temple because nobody who believes in God in that first century, no good Jew would have a denarius in his pocket because the coin has a graven image Of Caesar Tiberius on it. Not only does it have an image of Caesar, but under the image of Caesar, it calls him the divine Tiberius, that he is a God himself. It calls him Pontifex Maximus. It calls either Caesar or the image of the woman on the flip side, which is either his wife or his mother, calls one of them the high priest. You see this whole Pontifex Maximus, that the Catholic Church for the Pope got that from the Roman emperor. They used it first. And so here we have this idolatrous coin with the image of a man claiming that that man is God in the court of the temple itself. Why did they have money changers for the temple? They had money changers for the temple so that you wouldn't bring any of these idolatrous coins into the temple in the first place and here they've got one and they fess up and they show it to him. And Jesus says, basically, God doesn't want your idolatry. God is not interested in any of your idolatry, so you can give all of that right back to Caesar. He says, whose image is on it? Well, Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. What is he saying? Yeah, those coins that came from Caesar, back to him they go. God God does not want... And God does not want any of his people to have any of Rome's idolatry. No argument there from anybody in the Jewish quarter. And no, no argument from Rome now. Yeah, give Rome Rome's money back. And give to God that which is God. Well, how did he determine the coin was Caesar's? Because it had the emperor's image on it. Well, then how do you know what's God's to give to him? i got good news for you this morning, folks. It's not the money in your pocket because God's picture isn't on that. God's image is on you. We get confused sometimes, this whole thing about tithes and offerings, because we think God needs our money. God does not. Now, the finance committee is concerned. There's no way he's quandaries. I'm in kind of a quandary like, like Jesus was in there. No, no. God doesn't merely want our money. God wants us. That we would give ourselves to him because his image is upon us. What, God, what Jesus has also just done. He said, yeah, Rome has an authority, but God has a higher authority. Rome's image is on a coin. God's image is on all of humanity, even the Romans who put their image on the coin. So he has just usurped Rome's authority in a very nice way. He's elevated the issue. He's pointed it back to where'd the money come from? Where did you come from? We answer to God. People would ask us, "Do you really believe God made everything out of nothing?" Well, you can have a little fun with that. You can say, "Well, did you really believe that nothing made everything out of nothing?" <laughs> Which is harder to believe? Don't, don't, don't merely accept the question on its own premise because they ask the question, you really believe God? Say, yes, I do. Well, that's just ridiculous. Nobody believes that anymore. And off, off they go. And you're left on the outside. Have a little fun. Elevate the question. Give to Caesars is a limitation on government's claim on Christians and even on the principle of Romans 13 that we need to submit to human government and authorities and we pray for governors and rulers over us, absolutely. And yet the disciples stood before a council and they said, we must obey God rather than man. We will obey human authority in its, in its appropriate realms, but those realms do not include matters of faith concerning God. And the temporary social order of the day will not determine what is acceptable in terms of God. The next question is a, is a, a spiritual question asked by spiritual people. And you know lots of spiritual people around you who don't believe in Jesus. Well, I believe in God, but. That's the kind of question they're asking. Well, we believe in God. Certainly we're spiritual people. I mean, we run the temple. And we've got the books of Moses, and we follow Moses, and Moses told us this. But that doesn't seem to line up with the stuff you guys are talking about, about resurrection. And resurrection is going to be pretty central to Jesus' claim as Messiah, Right? When Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and declares Jesus has to be the Messiah, why? Because he's the one that David said that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay, that God would raise up his Holy One, his Messiah. Jesus is Messiah because Jesus is resurrected. The resurrection is everything. It's not understood in our experience. So people who want to come based on our experience, how we know society works, and what we know from human experience, what we know from our own reason, this whole idea of afterlife and resurrection doesn't make any sense. And yet, what Jesus does, he goes back to what they do believe. He goes back to what what they do believe concerning, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead but of the living. But there's more to that statement than that. When Jesus, when Jesus answers the question by saying, the God who appeared to Moses and who's going to, through Moses, bring God's people into this land, why is he bringing God's people into this land? Because this is the land he promised to give to Abraham and yet Abraham never owned it. He promised to give it to Isaac and Isaac never owned it. He promised to give it to Jacob and Jacob never owned it. How is God going to keep his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob? And if he isn't going to keep that promise, then what business does Moses have believing that God's going to bring this people out of Egypt and let them live there now? God is going to keep his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob because he's going to raise them from the dead. That's where Abraham's confidence as God is going to be fully realized. He looked for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God himself, and that God would raise him up in that city. That's where Abraham's hope truly was, and yours and mine as well. So Jesus' answer to the Sadducees, the spiritual ones of his day, who wanted to understand, who wanted to determine what's reasonable, What's reasonable to believe? Jesus Jesus goes back to what they do believe and uses that. Sometimes we're hesitant to use Scripture. We don't think it will really apply to the people that we're talking to. But God's word does not mean less. A lot of people will will try to to minimize God's word. Well, does it really mean that? As if God's word means less than it says. What this passage tells me in terms of I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's saying a lot more than merely this is the same God Abraham believed in. It's saying more than merely this is the same God that Isaac and Jacob believed in. What God is declaring to Moses is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive and that I'm going to keep my promise to them and it's going to take its next step in fulfillment through you. Scripture, even that one verse, which seems to be just sort of an introductory verse into the story of God talking to Moses at the burning bush and the whole take off the sandals thing. That one little phrase, which seems like just an introductory phrase, means so much. It's Jesus' proof positive of the resurrection to those who dismissed it out of hand. Scripture means more than we think it does, nevertheless. There's always more to God's word than we comprehend because it's God's word. There's always more to it, not less than we think. So don't be afraid to use God's word. It's going to come up in the next, in the next passage as well. But don't be afraid. No, actually, I think right here it fits. Romans, Romans 1, 15, and 16, Paul says, I'm, I'm ready to come to Rome. Now, Rome was the capital. Rome was the center of the world in that day. And because Caesar the God lived there, well, Rome seemed to be the center of the universe in that day. And this is where, okay, Paul can, Paul can take his, his gospel across Turkey uh, in, in, the, in the backwoods of Galatia. Paul can preach his gospel in the synagogues of the Jews, but... Let him bring it to Rome and we will pick it apart. We'll show all the fallacies. We'll show all the faults. We'll show all of the, all of the things that it can't possibly cover an answer. Paul's, Paul's, Paul's gospel, as he preaches it all over here and there, out there, it's been received because he hasn't brought it under real examination yet. You give us a crack at it and we'll tear it apart. That was the thinking in Rome. Paul said, I'm not afraid to come to Rome. I haven't come to Rome yet, not because I'm afraid to come to Rome. The gospel actually ran there ahead of him through those that he preached to everywhere else in the Roman Empire. But he said, I'm eager to come preach the gospel to you out of Rome also. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed. I do. I am not worried that if I'm too open with the gospel, it's going to let me down. It's going to be shown to be wrong. God's Word is more powerful than we think it is, not less powerful. We can use it. I remember years ago, somebody told me, out of Hebrews chapter 4, I think it's verse 12, that the the Word of God is alive it's powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. The two-edged sword was the, was the fully automatic weapon of its day. Not only did it have a, a sharp blade that way, but when you came back, you didn't even have to turn it around. It was ready to go again. Fully loaded in each direction. A Romans two, ro, the, the two-edged sword of the Roman soldier was a revolutionary weapon in its day for close combat. And he said, the word of God is sharper than anything like that. It is alive. It is powerful. It is able to pierce into the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing else gets there. And... He made this analogy. He said, you know, if you, if you were in a battle and you were the one that had the two-edged sword in that day, you would not argue with your opponent about how sharp this sword was. You would not discuss the, the advantages in battle because it could cut this way and also that way. You would not say, you know, you really don't met with me because I have this sword and, and it's really a good sword and look how long it is and look how sharp it is and look how strong it is. You would simply put it to use. You would run them through with it and they would bleed profusely. Now, I caution you, we're, our job is not to run people through with swords and to cause them to bleed profusely. But the analogy back to the Word of God is in, 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 in a spiritual battle for the souls of those that we care about and love and wanting them to, wanting them to know our God and our Redeemer. Don't be afraid to use God's Word because it will do its work. It is powerful. The Spirit has promised to use His Word. He has given it to us. This is how we know God, through His revelation to us. Our knowledge of God is not based on our own reasoning. That was the Sadducees. They were a a religious people, a spiritual people, whose definition of God was determined by their own sense of what's a reasonable God for us to believe in. I believe in God on my terms, I believe in God, but. For instance, I believe that all good people go to heaven, somebody might say. I'm believing in God on my terms. Well, first of all, how do you define a good person? Who gets to decide who a good person is? Is that, is that up to people or is that outside of us? First, secondly, who's heaven? Whose heaven is it? Where did heaven come from? Who created heaven and so who gets to decide who gets to go there? Is this up to us? Is this by popular decree? The problem with democracy, the problem with American democracy, and please, I know I know we have um, um, we are we are we 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 have patriots in our midst, and and uh, we 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 participate at various levels within the political. I'm not saying there's something terrible about American democracy. It's I think it's the best system on the planet, but there's a spiritual problem, and it's with us. The problem with American democracy is we are used to choosing our own leaders, and we're glad we get a say in that. We're glad that we get to choose our own leaders, and we choose our own leaders, and we expect them to answer to us. Isn't that the way American democracy works? Well, we think it does, anyway. That's the game that we play. We think we choose our own leaders, and we think they answer to us. The first is probably true. The second one, not so much. But here it is. God's Realm doesn't work that way. God, we do not choose who will be God. We do not choose what God will be, and God does not answer to us. In fact, the way it works in God's economy, in God's realm, we don't choose God. God chose us. You see? So don't let the system and our experience and how we work in American democracy and why this works as it does among a people, particularly when you have a population that fears God. That's when American democracy or democracy as we know it, that's when it works best among a population that fears God. So... We don't choose God, we don't define God, and the, 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 uh, the things which are right about God are not, are not determined by the social whims or the political whims of the day. What seems reasonable to society right now, that's the spiritually dismissive question. Your answer in biblical terms may seem dismissive in the norms of society today. Hardly anyone believes that anymore. That doesn't change whether it's right or wrong because the truth of it is determined by God himself, not from us. And isn't it curious, this particular question about the resurrection that they want to decide based on our experiences and what we understand from life is a question that extends beyond this life. Did you catch the assumption in the question That life in the resurrection will be as life as we know it. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Whoever said in the resurrection she will be anybody's wife or he will be anybody's husband. You know, this thing called marriage is given to us it's given to us for our good. We compliment one another, and in that complimenting one another, and in that most special and closest and most intimate of human friendship relationship, we taste something of what it is to be related to God, to be in relationship with God. And to be fully accepted by another, that's what marriage is supposed to be because in that we're supposed to have something by which we compare what the future will be. This is the shadow, then will be the fullness when we are in his presence and we won't need the shadow or the analogy to help us understand that. Rather, we will be together as family, as brothers and sisters, with harmony and complete acceptance among ourselves and together fully accepted. Accepted before God in intimate, wonderful relationship with him that we were created for. But we, we are stuck understanding future in present tense terms. And yet, is this what you want eternity to be like? I'm not talking about your marriage now. I don't want you to get you in trouble with your spouse. But, but is, is life as you know it today, is this what you want eternity to be like? It's got to be better than this. We are broken people in a broken world, and we long for what God himself, when he talks about the future, when he talks about the eternity, he calls it the restoration of all things. We are headed to something far better than this. So don't let that far better be, be defined in present-day broken humanity terms even if we don't know all that it is we know it will be better we know there will be no sin we know there will be no loss we know there will be no death we know there will be no tear we know that we know that that longing that each of us have for acceptance before God and with one another we know that that will finally be fulfilled and all the things that hinder us and drive us apart and hurt that'll all be gone it'll be done with that's eternity from God's perspective as he's described it to us because we can't know it for ourselves because we've never been there. So we are dependent on God's revelation and that's how Jesus answers the question to them. They want to start with God's re- revelation. We like the books of Moses. Moses gave us this. He said, okay, well, let me give you what else Moses gave you. Let's go back to the very beginning of Moses and there's something to learn there. I was told years ago that if you don't understand something you're reading in the Bible... Or if you don't understand the question that you're given, go back a few pages. It's like, do you, you ever experience when you're reading along in a book? Does anybody read books anymore? Novels? You're reading along in a book or on your Kindle, and all of a sudden you realize, I don't know what's going on here. Who is this person? And so you have to go back a couple of pages until you find out, okay, now where did this person come from? Where did they enter into the conversation? Where did they come into the storyline? Spiritual truth is like that. I was told years ago that if you don't understand something, back up a few pages. And if you still don't understand, back up a few pages. you still don't understand, back up a few more pages, and sooner or later you'll find yourself in Genesis. And if you get back to Genesis 3, by then you're going to understand it. That really what's going on in humanity relates two ways. We were created by God in his image And we have rebelled and fallen away, and we've been separated from God and are in desperation making our own way. What's going on in these conversations today? If you have to go back that far, it's going to make sense there. Jesus takes them back. Okay, you like Moses? He takes them back all the way to the beginning of Moses. (laughs) You're having conversations with people. Somebody asked me after after the first service, "I'd I like to elevate that conversation the way Jesus did. He goes back to the image of God. He goes back to Genesis, doesn't he? Hey, I- I- how do I elevate that? Well, well, listen, listen to what they're asking. I-, I I remember asking a question. Why? That's a that's a very interesting question. Why do you ask? I think I've told you a story before, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll spend a couple of minutes on it. The the um. The pastor was asked at the back of the church as people were going out, um, you know, sometimes people just have a random question. And, and, um, and uh, somebody asked him, Pastor, what do you think about cremation? You know, that's becoming more and more popular now. And he says, well, you know what they say, uh, you bury treasure and you burn trash. Yeah. <laughs> then he thought to ask, why do you ask? Well, my mom died a couple of weeks ago, and that was, her, that was her request. And so I was just trying to figure out what to do. We, we, we went with her wishes, but I just wasn't sure what, what, what I should think about that. I think the pastor at that point wished he'd asked, well, that's an interesting question. Why do you ask before he'd given the cutesy answer, right? What if we did that? Not the trash thing. What if we, what if we asked, that, 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 that's an intriguing question. Why do you ask? In a sense, you're asking somebody to reveal, to to lay down a few more cards, to to show a little more of their hand. I'm sorry, is that poker analogy in a Baptist church? (laughs) But to give a little more of what's going on in here, out here, create a little more openness together that might also result in some trust. If I care not only about what you're asking, I got a right answer for that. That's what we're good at. I got a right answer for that. Why do you ask? Because my right answer might not help at all. Sometimes people are asking merely to trap you, and yet, what if out of that trap you could turn them towards truth that happens in the next one look at look at uh, that last one again the scribe comes up and and this is more clearly in matthew's version rather than in mark it 's more clearly that this is the third this is the third attempt at, at, at entrapment another debate in that day, and sometimes it was between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what's more important in the law of Moses? Is it the Godward side of the law, or is it the manward side of the law? Is it how we worship God in temple, or is it how we behave for God toward one another? Which commandment is greater? Don't sin or offer a sacrifice. If I could put it in those terms. Which commandments are better? The first table... Those first four commandments, were directed, which are directed toward God, have no other God before him, have no idols or graven images, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy as a day devoted to God, or the second tablet, the, 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 the last six of the Ten Commandments, which say things like, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, do not steal your neighbor's stuff, do not steal your neighbor's wife or husband, do not kill your neighbor, all these things that you would do against one another. Is it more important that we do something for God or more important what we do for one another? And the Sadducees owned the temple and shut the Pharisees out of it. And so the Pharisees owned the the morality landscape, what we do to one another. And the Sadducees were Sadducee. They didn't have much to contribute there. So, what's more important, Jesus? If you say the Pharisee sect, and the obedience, morality laws, now you have just denied temple. If you say temple and obligation to God, you have empowered the corrupt Sadducees, and again, you've turned your back on the masses of believing Jewish people who are trying to walk with God. What are you going to say, Jesus? Jesus surprises him. He reminds that God is a God of unity. God is one. There is only one God. All of the law is all from one God. The law all goes together. And then he reminds them that the the, the two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he doesn't just pick one out of the ten. He summarizes table number one, love the Lord your God, With table number two, love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these. He takes the two sides of it. He puts it together as one. He didn't say anything about temple sacrifices, did he? But the lawyer does. The scribe does. You're right, teacher. He is one. There is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart, understanding, and strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe is showing a little bit of his Pharisaical side maybe, his, his leaning to that side and against the temple side. That's better. All that together is better than those temple sacrifices. And Jesus' answer to him here is very interesting. Jesus says, you are close to the kingdom of God. He's been surprised, and he's, he's now surprised that how I put my, my devotion to God is related to my, how I conduct myself towards people. I worship God by loving my neighbor. One author put it this way. If I could find my, my, my quote again here. He said, love for fellow human beings is a hands-on experience or hands-on expression of love for God. No obedience to God ever stands in a vacuum. No obedience is ever detached from the concrete situations in which I stand as a human being among others. And that's a little long, so James shortens it a little bit. He tightens it up. He says, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. I do what I do toward others because of what I believe and as an honoring and worship to God. I present my body a living sacrifice. I love God with all my strength in what I do with and for others. Pastor Bob put it this way, what you know affects what you believe, and what you believe determines what you do. Those things that we do toward one another are a lived-out expression of our faith, what we are believing about God. Okay? That's intriguing. In, in, these, in these three challenges, the one who is most receptive to Jesus is the one who himself is most interested in God's written word. He's the one. The one who's most focused, this scribe who's most focused on the written word is Intrigued by the answer giving, given by listening to the living word. Jesus says, You're not far from the kingdom. What has he done? He still dismissed burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's what keeps him out of the kingdom. You say, What? Wait a minute. I don't have any burnt offerings or sacrifices this morning. Does that mean I'm not in the kingdom? Well, he's, he's, he's agreed with what Jesus said, to, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and, and to, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this, there's nothing else. And yet we don't do that. And yet we can't do that. And so Jesus would come and do that for us. You see, someone would ask you, what's more important, going to church or being good? Going to church or, or, or doing good for other people? They might ask you that as if that's mutually exclusive. As if people go to church, go to church, and they're fine there because they go to church. They don't need to care about anybody else. They just go to church, and God's happy with that, as if that's all God cared about. Or, I don't need to go to church because I do good things for other people. And I can simply leave God completely out of it. I do good things for other people because I'm good, but I'm not. I have a confession to make this morning. I do not love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't. I spent some of that strength the other day just watching TV. It had nothing to do with God at all. I do not love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you know what? I don't love my neighbors as myself. I don't. Some of them I hardly know. I hardly care about. We can't do in our broken, fallen condition, what we are made to do. We cannot love God wholly. We cannot love our neighbors fully, and so we need God's sacrifice, which the burnt offerings pointed to, which is Jesus himself, as described in Psalm 40. A couple of verses here. Psalm 30, verses 6 to 8. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, an ear you have dug for me, a body you have created for me. The psalm prophetically says, burnt offerings and sin you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. Jesus quoted this psalm concerning himself, as did the writers to the book of Hebrews. Jesus would be our offering. He would be the obedient one for us toward God. And it was in obedience to God that he laid down his life in love for you and me. And our salvation is not being good enough before God or men, but is in him. And what he did for us. And that's what I want to tell somebody about. I may not love everybody well enough, but I want to tell people around me that. And if they want to challenge me with a question, maybe in response to that question I can get back to all the way to the garden that they too were created in the image of God. They too share in this fallen rebellion, and they too can be covered by the sacrifice of an innocent one in their place. Let's pray that God would give us that opportunity when people would challenge us. Father, would you do that? Lord, we're not clever enough to know just how to answer. But Lord, you said that your spirit would give us, your spirit would give us an answer at the time, in the moment. So Lord, we want to take your word. We want to hide it away. We want to know why we hope in you. And Father, we want to trust your spirit then to use us toward others. Lord, we don't want to have eternity to ourselves, just me and Jesus. Lord, I want to share your love with as many people as I can. But, Father, there's somebody, whether today or tomorrow, that you'd put me around. Father, do it. And, Father, by your Spirit, by the Spirit that you have put in me, in us, Father, would you use us to show somebody else Jesus' love?